morning, church family and friends. Good to see you today. Thanks for being with us. I want to welcome everyone who's in person and all of you who are joining us online. I want to give an extra special shout out to all of our friends over at Impact Bethany this morning. We're so glad you are joining us for this part of the worship service. I was over at the Impact Bethany campus yesterday, and it looks great. I love the way the new wall at the back of the stage looks, and I'm so excited about what's happening there. If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it, and I want you to go with me to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And when you get to 1 Thessalonians, I want you to find chapter 5, and then I'm going to ask you just to hold that ready for a little while, because we won't reference that until later in the message. This is the third week of our Truth Over Trend message series, and what we're going to talk about together today is the deconstruction of faith. And as I say that, some of you might be wondering, what in the world is the deconstruction of faith? Well, let me try to answer that, first of all, by giving you a definition for the word deconstruction. I'm going to say this slowly because it's a mouthful. Deconstruction is a philosophical movement and theory of literary criticism that questions traditional assumptions with certainty, or about certainty, rather. Let me say that one more time. Deconstruction is a philosophical movement and theory of literary criticism that questions traditional assumptions about certainty and truth. I forgot the last part then the first time through. Now, when you apply that to the Christian faith, uh, what that means is that there are a lot of people, whether they grew up in faith in the church their entire life or they came to faith at some point later in their life, who are now deconstructing. They are challenging and questioning and oftentimes rejecting some of the most fundamental truths the Bible, some of the most fundamental things that they have believed all along during their life and their walk of faith. And as a result, they're doing a couple of different things. They're either embracing a new kind of Christianity that could be called a progressive Christianity or maybe a postmodern faith, or they're just walking away from their faith altogether. And that's something that's happening a lot in our culture today, whether or not you are aware of it, that's something that's happening a lot. And so what I want to do in our time together is I want to give you a basic understanding of deconstruction, and then I want to follow that up with a biblical encouragement related to living out our faith in this sinful, fallen, and confused world every single day. Now, the first two messages in this series on gender identity and on same-sex relationships went really long, much longer than I normally preach, and so I'm focused on not repeating that this weekend. But because there's so much more to this issue than I'm going to be able to cover in one message, like I did in the first two weeks, I'm going to give you an extra resource that you might want to check out yourself. If you want to do a deeper dive into this idea of deconstruction, then here is a book that I would recommend to you. It's called Another Gospel. The tagline is, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity, as I mentioned just a moment ago, is one of the results of deconstruction. People change from a conservative fundamental belief in Christianity to a more progressive belief that doesn't always affirm every single thing that the Bible has to say. It was written by a woman named Alyssa Childers. And if you want to do a deeper dive into the subject, then that's the book, the book or the resource that I would recommend. Let's begin like this. And there's really not an outline per se like we normally have in this message. So if you're someone who likes to take notes, man, you're just on your own. So just do the best that you can to try to figure out what you want to write down and what you don't. But let's just start by talking about two fundamental truths of the deconstruction of faith. And the first one is this, and these are important to understand. It 
It's been around a long time. The deconstruction of faith has been around a long time. It might be something that we're only really noticing or hearing a lot about in recent years, but it's something that's been around a long time. And when I say it's been around a long time, I mean it's been around a really long time because you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, which of course is the very first book in the Bible. And you can see that after the creation of man, after the creation of Adam and Eve, God placed them in the Garden of Eden. And this is what he said to them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, can we agree that those are some pretty specific instructions? That's what he said. And the word die there, by the way, in verse 17, in the original language of the Old Testament has the meaning of separation more than physical death. And so for Adam and Eve, death, the way it's spoken of there in those verses would mean spiritual separation from their perfect fellowship or their perfect relationship with God because Adam doesn't physically die until we get to Genesis chapter five and verse five. And so God gives Adam and Eve instructions about living in and working in the Garden of Eden that prohibited eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he also gave them instructions about what would happen to them if they disobeyed. That's Genesis chapter two. Now flip the page to Genesis chapter three. And the very first verse, Genesis chapter three, verse one says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, now note this, did God really say? That's such a critical statement. Right here, in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three and verse one, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, we know that the serpent, the serpent in this story is the manifestation of Satan appearing for the first time before what we call the fall of man, which also happens in Genesis chapter three. And what he does when he appears to Eve is he sows a seed of doubt. Everyone say doubt. Doubt in her mind with regard to the truthfulness and the authority of what God had said. In other words, he sows a seed of doubt related to the truthfulness and the authority of God's word. And so here's what we learn. The reality of deconstruction in the sense of questioning or doubting the truthfulness and the authority of God's word has been around for a really long time. And I'll add this to it. Oftentimes, Satan is the source of that question and that doubt. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter three. He does this by not only telling Eve that it's possible that God's words aren't really true, but also by causing her to believe that God, in giving her in that instruction, was somehow holding out on her, was somehow holding her back from an even better life than the life she was experiencing in the moment. And I say that because in Genesis chapter 3, Satan goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, you will not surely die. There's, again, this a doubt, this doubt related to what God had said. But then he adds this, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so not only is he trying to get her to doubt the truthfulness of what God had said, but he's also trying to get her to believe that 
God's holding out on her, that there's something better for her, something more for her outside of what God wills for her life. And so here's the bottom line. I'll say it again. The reality of deconstruction when it comes to our faith has been around for a long time. Now, when you think about this in modern terms, having said that, when you think about this in modern terms, there are multiple different reasons why some believers will deconstruct their faith today. We can't talk about all of them, and so what I have done is I have chosen what I think are three that are very, very common, three that honestly could possibly affect just about any one of us, and so I want to talk to you about those three for just a moment. Here they are, poor teaching, spiritual hurt, and a desire to compromise. And when I say a desire to compromise, I want to be really clear about this. I'm talking about a desire to compromise which leads to a life or a lifestyle of sin. Those are three really common reasons why people will deconstruct their faith. Poor teaching, spiritual hurt, and a desire to compromise. And while I can't go into them in detail, I will say something about each of them. So let's start with poor teaching. Poor teaching that can lead to the deconstruction of faith. And honestly, this can mean a lot of things from listening to someone who is simply not gifted when it comes to communicating the truth of God's word to someone who preaches a shallow message and avoids the weightier issues and topics of the scripture, the ones that give us a foundation to stand on when difficulty comes into our life, to someone who doesn't love and believe the scriptures enough to preach them and present them with power and conviction. It can mean a lot of different things. And I'll just simply tell you that I am consistently surprised by how little biblical truth many people claim uh, many people who claim to be Christians, rather, understand and apply to their life, even sometimes people who have spent many, many years of their lives in church. And so, here are, uh, or here is an example of how poor teaching can lead to the deconstruction of faith. Uh, it can lead to the deconstruction of faith with regard to how we handle questions and doubt. Now, I don't know if you were here a few years ago when we did a weekend message series called Room for Doubt was based on just that statement that in every church there needs to be room for doubt or in other words, you know, we, there needs to be room for people to be honest about where they are in their journey of faith and at times, sometimes because of a variety of different things, we can have questions and doubts about our faith. Our faith can, can kind of sag a little bit. We can kind of struggle but there needs to be room for doubt in those things and the way we respond and the way we try to help strengthen people who have um, that kind of a struggle. Because one of the things you discover when you study the Bible is the Bible makes room for doubt. The Bible allows room for doubt. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give, just give you one example. Uh, and it has to do with John the Baptist. Uh, it's probably the most common uh, example of, of doubt that we uh, talk about in the New Testament. Maybe you remember the story, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't even know who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist played a prominent role in the life of Jesus. He was the, the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. He was, he was the forerunner of Jesus. They are closely connected. John the Baptist was God's man at God's time. And when he came into the world, you know, if you know anything about him, that he came with boldness and with power and conviction. He was a powerful preacher and he wasn't afraid of anyone or anything when it came to preaching the truth of God's word. But then there was a time in John the Baptist's life where his faith went through trauma. 
And he had some questions and he had some doubt. He went from being this bold and fiery preacher, a man who at one point in John chapter one and verse 21 pointed his finger at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to someone who is now in jail. And he's filled with discouragement and filled with questions and he's overwhelmed with doubt. And so he sends his disciples one day to ask Jesus this question. This is Matthew eleven three: Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And so he goes from this bold preacher who says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to someone who says to his disciples, go and ask Jesus, are you really the guy? Are you really the one that Jesus said? Are you really who you say you are? But the thing is, Jesus did not react in a negative way or a harsh way to the reality of John's doubt. And so, this is what we read. When his disciples went to ask Jesus that question, Jesus responds like this. This is Matthew 11, verses four and five. Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So in other words, Jesus told John's disciples to go back and tell him what Jesus was doing because he was doing all of those things because what Jesus was doing was the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. But there was no rebuke. There was no condemnation. There was no dismissal. There was just loving assurance. And there are other stories in the scriptures about handling doubt, but we'll stop right there. See, poor teaching is often seen in the way we handle questions and doubt because poor teaching tells someone you should never have any questions, you should never have any doubt. How reasonable is that, friends, as we live in this sinful and broken world? Poor teaching tells someone that if you have doubts, then you just need to pray harder. Or you just need to, to, to involve yourself in some level of spiritual discipline on a deeper level or something like that, but that doesn't always solve the problem. Good teaching makes room for doubt and responds to it with love, not rebuke, but with love and affirmation and the help needed to get your faith to where it needs to be. I wish we could talk more about that, but we have to move on because there's a second common cause for deconstruction. And this is really prominent in our world today. And I just call it here in my notes, in my message, I call it spiritual hurt. Spiritual hurt can lead to the deconstruction of faith because many believers don't have their faith, and this also relates back to poor teaching at times, they don't have their faith grounded in the unchanging reality of who God is or the unchanging character of God or the unchanging sovereignty of God and on and on and on. One of the most common, if not the most common question that people ask me, and this has been the case for over 40 years in every church that I've served, is the question, and you probably know what it is, why does God allow suffering? Because as we live our lives in this sinful, fallen, broken, confused world, frustrated world, we oftentimes have to come face to face with some really difficult times of suffering. And this is something I've talked about many times. I've talked about it 
many times over my years here at Mount Pleasant, but no matter how many times you talk about it, no matter how many answers you provide, the question just quite simply never goes away. And I've seen people so disappointed and so devastated by the trials of life, and I'm sure you have as well. You may have somebody even close to you in your life that's been in this situation, and maybe this describes you. So disappointed and so devastated by the trials of life that it causes them to come to a place where they just don't believe that they can, they just don't believe that they can trust in, a, in God being good any longer. They just don't know if they can, they can believe in a God who fundamentally is always good regardless of what's happening around us. I think about my sister-in-law, Jolene, who most all of you know was diagnosed with malignant brain tumor almost exactly a year ago today, been 12 months. And um, the technical term for it or the scientific, the medical term, whatever the right terminology is, it's a glioblastoma tumor and there simply is no cure. There's treatment that can prolong someone's life, but there just is no cure. And so the last 12 months for her have been brutal. I mean, just brutal. She's had two brain surgeries, which are so <laughs> incredibly invasive. I mean, just the, just the terminology of brain surgery is, doesn't even come close to communicating uh, exactly what happens. Uh, Sandy and I were not there for the first one that happened in Savannah where they live, but we were in Houston at MD Anderson Hospital for the second one. And I'm telling you what, it is a devastating surgery. And the, the recovery time from it is so long and incredibly difficult. And on top of that, there's been treatment and trial treatment programs that have side effects and consequences. And it's just been awful. It's been brutal for her. It's been brutal for my brother. And they have three children. They have a daughter and two boys. All of them are married. Daughter's married to a pastor. They have three children. Both the boys are married, but they've not been married that long, and so they don't have any children. So they have three kids and two, two kids and three, or three kids and three grandkids rather. And it's just been such a difficult time. I try to stay in touch with my brother uh, consistently, uh, but honestly, there are times when he can't even bring himself to talk about it. The heaviness of it is so real, and so I can pretty much discern right when the phone conversation begins where he is with regard to that. And so we just pray without ceasing every single day. And I appreciate so much, so many of you who I know who are doing the same thing. It means so much to me. But here's the deal. Because both Jolene and Kenneth are grounded in the truth of God's word and in their faith, they're not walking away from their faith. They're not walking away from God they're drawing closer and closer and closer to him with every passing day because that's what the trials of life often do. They either cause us to walk away from God or they cause us to draw closer to him. Jolene grew up in a great Christian family and a great church in Montrose, Colorado. Uh, they met at, at Dallas Christian College when they were just kids and uh, got married and have been in ministry ever since. And I saw this last week, this little local uh, magazine where they live. It's called Effingham Living. Kenneth is a campus pastor for Compassion Christian Church in Savannah, Georgia, which is a church of about 8,000 people, and they have multiple campuses. And he is the campus pastor in, in what's called Effingham County. If you're familiar with that area, it's the city of Rincon. 
And they have this little local magazine called Effingham Living. And there's their, their picture, Kenneth and Jolene's picture is on the front of the magazine. And the story of walking this journey uh, is in the magazine. And he, let me just share with you something that Jolene says in the magazine article. She says, I just remember a friend of ours saying, I have not one more day and not one less day than before this diagnosis. God is still in control and we have as many days as he wants us to have. It's not any different than the day before the diagnosis. Talk about faith. Now I'm not some spiritual giant when it comes to faith. But I have lived the Christian life long enough to know that we do live in a sinful, broken, and fallen world, and it victimizes people in a variety of different ways. Oftentimes, it victimizes people that seem like they're the most innocent or the most least deserving because there's a randomness to how sin operates in our world today. And God, in his sovereignty, does not always choose to intervene in the way we like him to. But what we experience in this world is not all there is. Did you listen to my son's communion meditation this morning? Is the idea of regeneration something that's even real to us as we go through this world? This world is not our home. That's why the Bible says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And so we cling to this truth that the Bible teaches us that God is fundamentally, immutably good regardless of our circumstances as we live in a world that is not the world that God created in the beginning because the world he created in the beginning was perfect and sin damaged all of that. Does that, does that mean that we never have moments when we feel or even express our frustration or we feel or even express our fear or we feel or even express our anger at God or at the circumstances of our lives? No, because that's often a healthy thing. I say that because we see the reality of that over and over again in the book of Psalms and what we have come to know as Psalms of Lament where, where people, real people who are suffering difficulties in their lives, who are struggling in their lives, who feel abandoned in their lives cry out to God and they say exactly what's on their heart. And one of the things that I come to believe as I read those Psalms of Lament over and over again is that that's a healthy thing to do. It's, it's much more healthy than holding it all inside because oftentimes what you see in the Psalms of Lament is that the, that the articulation of those things, saying them out loud, leads us to be reminded of what we fundamentally believe to be true about God. Let me give you an example. It's not in my notes or in the PowerPoint, but something that I just thought of as we were sharing the message last night. I go to Psalm 13 in my Bible for a moment, just write that down somewhere in your notes. Psalm 13, it's a psalm by David, and David is clearly going through a difficult time in his life, and so he expresses that frustration, and he expresses the fear, and he expresses the anger about it in a very honest way with God. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. That sounds bad, doesn't it? It's like pointing an accusing finger at God and saying, how long? 
But then in the next two verses, this is what he writes. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Now what's the deal, folks? Is David manic? No. He's honest. And it's his honesty allowing him to express what he doesn't know to be true about God that reminds him of what he does know to be true about God. And I'm telling you, this is how we deal with the struggles of life. We deal with them through lament, by being honest, which again goes back to the first point about making room for doubt, even if that doubt lasts for just a very short period of time. And so, spiritual hurt can often cause us to deconstruct our faith because we can't understand why God would allow something like this to happen to us or even worse sometimes, to allow something like this to happen to someone that we love. There's another part, another part of that article where Jolene is really honest and she talks about her three children and her grandchildren and she says in the article, I can't imagine not being here for them in the future. put her faith and trust is in God. And she says, I know that God will take care of them. How, how grounded is your faith? Because none of us knows what tomorrow might bring. Another interesting truth about the modern deconstruction of faith that is associated to spiritual hurt is the disappointment many people feel when high-profile pastors or Christian leaders experience a public fall from grace. And I don't know if you pay attention to these kind of things, but this is something that's been happening a lot in the last several years. And maybe you don't pay attention, and that's great if you don't. But maybe you do. In the past few years, we've seen men like Robbie Zacharias, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Bob Coy, Ted Haggard, Bill Gothard, and several more whose names you may or may not recognize fall from grace for different levels of spiritual impropriety. And I'll just say it like that. And as a result, there are believers who feel such a devastating sense of loss or such a devastating sense of betrayal or disappointment that it causes them to begin to question their faith and they walk away from their faith. I went to a conference this last February that was specifically designed for megachurch pastors. Megachurches are any church, any Protestant church in America that has an average attendance of 2,000 people or more. And one of the sessions of the megachurch pastors conference I went to was how to avoid the danger of becoming a celebrity pastor. Can I tell you that I think it's tragic that we even have the term celebrity pastor in our culture today? But I doubt most celebrity pastors drive 13-year-old Hondas, so there's that, and I think I'm good. <laughs> Here's the bottom line, spiritual hurt, wherever it comes from and whatever its cause is very real, but let me tell you something about spiritual hurt, however it might come into your life. The deconstruction of your faith as a result of spiritual hurt is a false cure because you're turning away from the only thing that there is that can give you hope. The third most common 
uh, area or the, or the third most common thing that causes deconstruction of faith that I've got in my notes this morning is the desire to compromise, which oftentimes is the desire for sin. When we go back to Genesis chapter three and we, we see uh, the very first example of deconstruction, we see that it, uh, when Satan tempts Eve to disobey God, uh, it didn't start out with Eve getting up one morning and deciding that she was gonna compromise her faith or sin, but what Satan tempted her with, specifically that if she disobeyed God, and ate the fruit, she would be like God, that became just too much for her to overcome. The possibility of what that might be became too much for her to overcome. And this continues to be a real thing in the modern world we live in because there are, there are aspects of life, there are aspects of lifestyles that, that can be presented to people in a way that it just seems like it's too good to be true. And it's, it's, it, the, the temptation to say yes to it is just too much to overcome because of the pleasure it gives or the benefit that you, you perceive that it can bring into your life or whatever it might be. And this is especially true with regard to the two things we talked about these last two weeks. And we talked about uh, gender identity and we talked about same-sex relationships. We all struggle, at least on some level in our lives, with desires that come along that are not in line with the will of God. And the answer to those struggles is not the deconstruction of our faith that somehow makes us feel like we have permission to do whatever it is that's not in line with the will of God. The answer is to turn to God for strength, to be obedient and to do what God calls us to do. Look at these words on the screen from Genesis, or excuse me, from James chapter four, verses seven and eight. James writes and says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee to you, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's the response. Not compromise, but an even, even stronger conviction to draw near to God and be obedient. So the first, golly, that took a long time. So the first, uh, fundamental thing about the deconstruction of faith has been around a long time. The second fundamental truth about the deconstruction of faith is it's not always bad. It's not always bad. And we see a good example of that in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' most well-known sermon. It's found in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And we look at Matthew chapter five, what you find is six different times in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says these Words He says, you have heard that it was said. You're tracking with me? If you're a student of the Bible, you know what I'm talking about, right? Six different times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. It's a reference to something that was said related to uh, the Old Testament. And then he goes on to talk about murder. You've heard that it was said about murder, about adultery. You've heard that it was said about adultery. Divorce, you've heard that it was said about divorce. Oaths, the taking of oaths, you've heard that it was said about taking oaths. You've heard that it was said about an eye for an eye, so revenge or vengeance. You've heard for, that it was said about loving your enemies. And here's a simple explanation of what Jesus is doing here. He's using deconstruction to replace bad teaching with good teaching. I'm gonna say that again. He's using deconstruction to replace bad teaching with good teaching. Now, stop and listen to me real close because I have to qualify what I just said so there's no misunderstanding. Jesus isn't critiquing, rather, the Old Testament as being bad teaching when he says, you have heard that it was said because Jesus loves every single word of the Old Testament. Did you hear what I said? No emails. What Jesus is doing is he's critiquing 
the faulty traditions and interpretations and applications of those words. For example, you go to the, where he begins and talks about murder. He says, Matthew 5, 21, 22, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's acknowledging and affirming the command to not commit murder, but then he's raising the bar to, to, on, to, to how God wants us to behave towards other people that goes beyond just our physical actions and focuses also on the attitudes of our hearts. And so in other words, he wanted, to know, he wanted these people to know that there was more to living a truly righteous life when it came to the way you treated your neighbor than just not murdering them. You gotta have, you gotta have the right attitude in your heart toward them as well. And so what we see in all of those examples is a good example of deconstruction. So deconstruction has been around for a long time and not all deconstruction is bad. You know, there might be some things in your life uh, that need to be deconstructed regarding your faith because you've got a faulty uh, view of how you live out your faith. You know, I mean, in church, we, we're guilty sometimes of creating these, these traditions or these expectations that are not anywhere in the Bible, but we think really measures somebody's spiritual maturity, you know, but they don't. They're just human traditions. So having said all of that, I want you, you got your Bible still open in 1 Thessalonians 5? I want to just give you some really good, strong encouragement about how we are to live in this world to make sure that this doesn't happen in our lives. I've got, I, I want you to look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, verses 16 through 22, okay? And, and these, these words are going to sound familiar to most of you who I know are good students of the Bible. Paul ends this letter by saying, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid all kinds of evil or every kind of evil. Uh, so that's Basically, Paul giving the Thessalonians and us some really powerful, simple instructions about living the Christian life. All of those are so important. I mean, listen to them again. Be joyful always. Remember the great joy sermon? That's based on that verse right there. Great joy. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Thank, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out or quench the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. Every one of those things to be viewed as a primary duty of our lives as Christians. But in the context of this message, we're just going to talk about the last three for a second. First one is this. Test everything. What Paul's saying here is when you live your life of faith you, in this world, you have to live it with discernment discernment. And it's significant that Paul sets something as weighty as discernment in the middle of some very basic instructions like be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. We have to be discerning about every single aspect of our lives of faith. And so what he's really telling us when he uses the word test there, when he says test everything, is we, we have to distinguish with everything that comes along in our life about whether it's good or bad, true or false, right or wrong. The word he uses in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word dokimatso, and it's a reference for testing something for authenticity, it's, it's also used in the New Testament sometimes to distinguish between 
something that pleases God and something that doesn't please God. A good example would be Romans 12, 2, where Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test. Everyone say test. Test, that's where it is. And approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we have to have discernment in our lives because not everything that comes along is good. Not everything that glitters is gold. When it comes to Christianity and teaching and practices, and on and on and on. And so discernment is one of the most critical elements that all of us need in our lives of faith to avoid the danger of deconstruction. And let me tell you something, friends. Discernment can only come if you, if you are committed to reading and studying and knowing the truth of God's word. So just, let me just ask everyone a really straightforward question this morning. Everyone here, everyone joining in my line, all, online, all my friends at Impact Bethany, how much time and attention do you give to your faith? How much time and attention do you give to the building and the strengthening and the growing of your Christian faith? If the only thing you do is come here on Sunday morning and listen to me, that's not enough. This needs to be a personal undertaking for every committed believer. The second thing Paul says there after he says to uh, test everything is he says, hold on to the good. And so what we learn is that this instruction of testing everything, this instruction of discernment is not just an academic exercise. It also involves an action because when we discover what's good, we hold on to it. And, and, and literally in, the, in the, the original language here, the New Testament, he's talking about holding it securely or clinging to it no matter what. So we, when we discover the good that, that God has for us, we cling to it, we hang on to it like nobody's business. And the word that Paul uses for good here. There are multiple words in the Greek language translated good. The one that he uses for good here is the best of all of them. It's the Greek word kalos, K-A-L-O-S. And it has the meaning of something that is inherently good. It is always good in any circumstance and setting, in any situation, it is always good. When we discover those things, we hold on to them. Not good in the sense of being fair or lovely or beautiful to look at, but being genuine and right, not good in the sense of entertaining, not good in the sense that it receives the accolades of the world, not good in the sense that it satisfies the desires of our flesh. It's good in that it is accurate and authentic and dependable because it's in complete harmony with the will of God. And the will of God is found in the word of God. And when you find something like that, Paul says you hang on to it, man. You hang on to it like nobody's business. And so for us, again, that is, this, that is the word of God. This is the good. This is the good. And there's no better place in the Bible that where I'm reminded that God's word is good than when David writes these words about the, about the word of God in Psalm 19, verses seven through 11. He says, the law of the Lord, he's talking about the word of God, is perfect, reviving the soul. The, soul. the statutes of the Lord, he's talking about the word of God, are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, again, the word of God, are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord, the word of God, are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord, the word of God, is pure, enduring forever. And what we discover from the word of God, we hang on to. And that helps us avoid the danger of deconstruction. And finally, he says, avoid every kind of evil. And it's a strong word, that word avoid in the original language there. And so the emphasis is on you and I making the decision in our lives to avoid any evil teaching and any evil behavior 
And the word evil literally means something that can be harmful and malignant to our faith and our lives. And it can come along in many different forms. And so the bottom line is, Paul is telling these Christians in Thessalonica, and he's telling you and me today that we must, we must be able to discern truth from error, good from evil, and right from wrong when it comes to matters of faith. And when we do that, we can take a giant step forward in avoiding the temptation to ever deconstruct our faith. So let me just close like this, and the the team can get ready to come. Let me just talk to anybody who's listening to me right now, just for a brief moment, who might be struggling with their faith. Maybe you're struggling with your faith today. Maybe somebody watching online is struggling with their faith today. A lot of people struggle with their faith at different times in their life. Even, Even deeply committed godly people can sometimes struggle with faith because in part because the nature of faith can be so difficult. Look at the definition of faith found in the Bibles. Read this with me. Let me hear your voices. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Yikes, right? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't even see. And so one of the things that makes faith difficult for us sometimes is that it's not always tangible, Spiritual realities are not always tangible, and so they have to be experienced outside of our empirical senses, what we can see and what we can hear and what we can touch and so on. And so when we struggle with our faith and we experience times of doubt, again, we turn to what we know to be true. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying for his disciples. And he said to them, he said to God in his prayer in John 17, 17, about his disciples, sanctify them by the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. Listen to me really close. Sometimes people will let you down. Sometimes pastors will let you down. Sometimes churches will let you down. Sometimes other believers will let you down. But God won't ever let you down. Even when you don't understand his ways. Because one of the immutable or unchanging realities of God is that he is faithful and he is good. And so I'm gonna put these words up on the screen from Hebrews 10, 23. And because we always make the public reading of scripture a part of our service, we just sometimes are gonna wait to the very end to do it. If you're able, I'm gonna invite you to stand and we're gonna read these words together and then I'm gonna pray. Let's read them with conviction. Here we go. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. And we thank you that we can always trust in you. And I pray that you would just drive that home in our hearts right now in this moment. And I pray for anyone here who might be struggling with their faith, anyone listening to me who might be struggling with their faith. And I pray that you would protect them and that you would draw them close and that you would minister to their hearts with the truth of your word. And Lord, help us to live every single day of our lives with a greater and greater desire for that life that regeneration that is to come. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.